Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome back to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Hope you guys have been enjoying what we've been putting out here lately. I know we just finished up Pride Month. So if you hadn't had a chance to listen to those episodes from Pride Month, please, please, please do yourself a favor and go back and listen to those. There's some incredible stories being told, some information that's being shared. And honestly, it's going to be life-changing for you. I think that it's great for the listeners to hear things from a different perspective, from one that you may not hear as often. And the guests that we had during the month of June were absolutely incredible. So hope you have a chance to go back with those episodes and listen to them. And if you haven't had a chance, when you listen to it, share it with someone. That's what we want everyone to do. If you have an episode that you like, especially from the last month, why don't you share that with a friend, with a family member, or even an enemy? Because how do you get back at someone better? What's more passive aggressive than having them something that you think they may not like? <laughs> so send it out. Have fun with that. And as always, we appreciate all of the help and support. We've been doing this for some time now. We're in our 150th episode last month, and I didn't even realize that it was 150 episodes. I was like, oh, wow, it came out. I was like, man, it's been 150. So like I said, for us to be able to have 150 episodes is largely in part to the listenership. So we want to thank everyone for listening and ask for your continued support as we continue to grow this podcast. And with that today, we are joined by someone that I've been, okay, so we talked about it before we got on. So I'm going to tell you what happened. So I jumped on Instagram one day and then she's in my newsfeed. I said, who is this lady? And then I seen her on Instagram. Then I seen her on Twitter. Then I seen her on LinkedIn. I said, you know what? Enough's enough. I have to meet her. And so why today, is she everywhere? Everywhere, right? <laughs> she is omnipresent. She's everywhere. And so today we are joined by Lindsay Swanson. Thank you for joining us on the show today, Lindsay. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, I'm glad that all of my obnoxious professionalism has paid off. I just keep telling myself if I keep making content someday, it'll get good. So that is, I think it's good now. So if you're waiting for it, if it gets better, it's great. So I've loved it. And honestly, just, I always hate to say that if I say like, honestly, then it's like, well, what was I saying before? Was it not true? Everything's true. For the people that don't know you and haven't started following you on social media yet, because when they're done with this, they are going to want to follow you. But if you could give the Minority Money community a quick background of Lindsay and who you are and what you do. Yeah. So I'm Lindsay Swanson. I'm a certified financial planner. And I, right now, what I do is I run a firm that works specifically with sex workers. So it's a very stigmatized group. I offer financial planning. I'm advice only. So I don't sell anything. I don't charge off of AUM. A lot of advisors, you know, charge off the amount of investments, but I have a lot of fun with it. And it is something that always keeps me on my toes and something that is completely uncharted waters. So every day I'm like, okay, what problem are we solving today? And it's a good place to be in because I started my firm in August of 2020. So mid pandemic, it was kind of me being like, okay, I need to like have a little more control of my destiny. I need to be able to have more impact over the work I'm doing. And I've been in finance now for like 10 years and working at fee only firms. And it was good, but I even remember like a few years ago writing in my dream journal, like I don't want to just make rich people richer. Like I want to work with people. I want to work in a market that isn't oversaturated. And I want to work with people who aren't able to find help anywhere else. And so that's what I'm doing. Love it. I want to go back to something you said about the dream journal. And I think yeah. the listeners know I'm a big journaler. Everything I do, I journal it. I love to just get my thoughts out. And so what I wanted to ask is as you went into your niche, right? Yeah. A lot of people talk about working in niches. What I wanted to know is when you came to that decision, 
to say, okay, I don't want to make wealthy people more wealthy. When you came to the decision to work with the particular niche, I guess any niche for that matter, what was your thought process getting to not necessarily about the particular niche, but just finding one in general and then saying, this is where I'm going to go and this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very messy and not linear. I am a planner by heart. That's why it appealed to me with this work. I've always been like empathetic and strategic. And so I was like working with clients. It's great. And I never wanted to start my own business. I didn't even necessarily want to be an advisor, but I just like the more information I got, the more I felt like I like had to. I've just been like pushed in a certain direction. And I'm sure a lot of people who come on your podcast podcast feel that way. But I really wanted to make it working for other people. That was my comfort zone. And honestly, I've always been a follower. Like, even though I'm kind of obnoxious, I've always just been like, I want to make other people happy. And so when I was working at other firms, I was like, I absolutely want to serve the clientele that you're working with, you know, and it was usually retired people who were well off and, you know, serving their family and stuff. But I saw a lot of prospects and just normal people that were coming to the door being like, Hey, could you help me with this? But like, no, I don't have a million dollars. I don't even have like a hundred thousand dollars. I don't even have $10,000. You know, like I, I need help with my finances. I don't need you to like wait until I'm already successful. And so I kept feeling the pressure of like a lot of the industry feels like someone has to already have found success and done the right things before they get to us. And then we're like, good, we can work with this. And I just felt this large need in my life to be able to help the people who hadn't got there yet especially since I lived that. And I think that all of us in a lot of ways have lived that or are still living that. So I tried to make it work working with other people. And I kept kind of getting roadblocks of we need to not be political and you can't make a profit working with people that don't have a lot of money. And we don't want to alienate our current client base. And this was kind of in 2020, where obviously everything has been going on for a long time, but it felt very heightened of just like a lot of bad stuff going on. And I wanted to talk about it online and I wasn't allowed to. And I think a lot of advisors feel that way. Their firms are kind of keep it locked down on what they're allowed to say online. And I really wanted to speak up about things. And so I kind of honestly, when I started my firm, kind of, it was just like throwing my hands in the air of like, you know, fine, I'm just going to do it myself. Especially some people told me I couldn't and th that's my personality. So I was like, well, then I guess I need to. And initially, so I, we were talking about this before, but I live up in Humboldt, California, which is a very weird ecosystem. It was initially off the grid for a long time because of cannabis and it still feels that way. And so when I first moved here, it was kind of funny because people assumed that I was a business owner already, um, just because everyone is kind of an entrepreneur up here and you can't tell if they're like a millionaire or like homeless. Like you just can't tell. Everyone kind of acts the same. And I would tell them like, oh, is it associated with this other firm? And they were like, yeah, we don't really want to work for the man. But like, if you ever go out on your own, like totally, they just like very like anti-establishment, anti-government. And so I had quite a few friends out here who were business owners who were like, once you start your own thing, like, we'll hire you. And I was like, okay. So I did that for a while with cannabis. And that was the direction that I wanted to go of like, this is a group of people right now. Advisors are like, oh, I feel like there's a lot of money to be made in cannabis, but then they like don't know how to do it, which wasn't my approach at all. But just like, there's a lot of cash flow planning needed in cannabis. Like it's the economy of that is very up and down. Um, so I started working with them and I was interested in that, but I felt like I was still kind of fighting who I am. You can't see me because it's a podcast, but I am just like the classic white girl and not someone that 
people inherently like businessmen inherently are like, yes, I'm going to trust you with my finances. And so I was always kind of like fighting who I am and what I look like and how people perceive me at the same time as working with people in cannabis. I started working with quite a few sex workers out here because those communities overlap quite a bit. And they were just super great. They were so nice. I could be myself around them. They didn't care what I looked like. They didn't care what I acted like. They like trusted me. And it was just really cool. And I realized that like, you don't always have to fight with your clients to be like, hey, listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. I went to college. So anyway, in terms of like getting into the niche, I, I started just working with more and more sex workers and was really loving it, but kind of dragging my feet on actually committing to that as a niche because it's really stigmatized. So it took me a little while to do that. And I didn't really commit to them specifically until last December of 2021. But since then, it's been super great. So I'm glad that I did. You know, and as you're talking through your journey and just like you get into the niche, I heard a few things. One of the things I heard first is you found your tribe. Like when yeah. you find your tribe, it's different, right? These clients yeah. connect with you and it's like, no one else can do what Lindsay's doing for me. And that's what you were looking for. And once you found that tribe, it's like you can build a business on the tribe of people that you love yeah. working with. And so it's incredible that you were able to do that. And then taking the stand, like I think about that and it's largely in part because of the industry we're in. And this is what I'll share with you, what we went through when we decided to name the podcast Minority Money. So, you know, there's a lot of podcasts about money. There's a lot of podcasts about minorities. There's a lot of podcasts about different things, but I was worried what are people going to say? You know, is it going to sound like it's just a black podcast? Cause I say minorities and I'm black. Are people going to accept it? Will they listen to it? And I thought about making it change in the complexion of wealth, which is the tagline for the show, because that's what the goal is. But you know, when I was tell people that they would be like, well, complexion kind of sound, you know what I mean? So I was getting, and I was like, you know what, I'm damn it. I'm just minority money. That's what it's going to be. When, when you make that decision and you just say, this is what I'm doing and I'm just going to do it. And that's what I'm doing. Something happens, something clicked. And then it just all started to fall to get like everything just started to fall in place and the people that wanted minority money found minority money mm -hmm. and the people that want to work with Lindsay are finding Lindsay now and then so representing stigmatized clients is what we're going to talk about today and, and you said yeah. working you know working with sex workers and then having the, the transition kind of from cannabis into that now mm -hmm. when I think about that I think both of these are very cash intense businesses that come with I, I had a career in banking uh, my wife's still a bank manager now so totally understand like how that with the cash intense businesses, how that affects banking and all that. But wanted to just let you talk about it from, you know, the perspective of the clients and, and how you've seen it go. But, you know, how has banking been discriminatory against sex workers? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I had when I first started working, even with cannabis, when I first started working with people in cannabis and then with sex workers more, I had an initial kind of like list of here are the problems that I'm projecting onto my audience. And I think as planners, you know, like we go to school and we get all this education, all the designations, and it's like, what are we, if not the experts in the field, right? So I think we have a list. And so I had all of these issues that I thought my clients would have. It's not that I was even wrong. I was just naive of like the priorities of it and what was actually happening day to day. And I... I'm not from a sex worker background. And so a lot of times it's very hard because I'm hearing from my audience, but I haven't experienced it myself. And so I just kind of assumed initially that, you know, if you were operating legally, then institutions would accept you as a legal client and they wouldn't care. And that's just not the case. Mm -hmm. I think that that also speaks to my experience as a white woman, because I just assume that establishments are safe for me and will cater to me. And that isn't something that I, you know, have experienced in the past. And even just like previously being a Christian, people just like accept me the way I am. And so I think that I kind of had a rude awakening of how my clients really interact, not just with banks, but with institutions in general, like 
I'm hiring for an intern this summer, which is really exciting. And I tried to post a job posting on Indeed and my company name is Stripper Financial Planning. And so I talk about like sex work in the post and it's not obscene. It's just what I do. And they like flagged it and I had to call them. Um, They like disabled my account and I had to call them and talk on the phone with them for like four hours about how my company is not a sex worker company. It's working with sex workers. And there's so many things like that. Banks have a lot of policies that are essentially like moral high ground policies of... We don't want to work with you if you're if you're working in these industries. And it's kind of anti-capitalism if you really think about it. It's interesting to see how that impacts my clients. Cause on the one hand, it's like this old school, mostly conservative men in some room making these rules, but they also still hold out, oh, the free market, oh, you should, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And yet they aren't really allowing the people who want to do that to use their services. And it's really hard and complicated. I mean, totally like you're talking about the people that make the rules and you look at the room of the rule makers and the room of the rule makers probably didn't have very many women in it, probably didn't have very many people of color in it, probably didn't have very many, you know, diverse backgrounds of work in it. And so what it does is the people that are in power get to make the rules and and the rules are always going to benefit them. And then they get to come back and say, well, you can just build this from the ground up and bootstrap yourself. And it's just easy to do it because we did it because we set the rules. And so since we set the rules, we know how to play by them. And when you find people that are in this particular profession or any profession that for that matter, that the bank has kind of said, oh, well, we can't help you. And banks still do this actually even on, on lending. When it comes to lending, we just talked about this recently. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of this discriminatory practices that happen at the banks or finance, let's just back up, financial institutions. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it's not just banks. I think the whole financial system has catered to a specific group of people more than others. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And I think that a lot of times, even I've noticed this a lot because I have been really lucky while I have my haters for my firm. I've had a large group of really great advisors who are more progressive, who have really been supportive of me. But also, I think especially advisors who are well-educated, who have created a bubble for themselves, me included. I think that a lot of times surprised and like appalled that these systems are still oppressing people. And I'll post, you know, randomly like, oh, my client had a Wells Fargo account and, you know, the assets were frozen for nine months, which is legal for them to do because that's in their terms of conditions and blah, blah, blah. And they'll be like, well, that's not fair. Like, yeah, it's not fair. But I think like even a lot of I've been trying to use my position of advocating for the industry, but not being a part of the industry to really kind of push some buttons. But like I talked to a VP at one of the major banks um, who has terms and conditions specifically against adult entertainers. It's actually in their small print. And she didn't know that it was in there. And kind of, of course she didn't, because when you join a company, you aren't like, let me read through all of this stuff. But I think that like a lot of it is ignorance of things that don't impact us. Like if I didn't hear a news story about, you know, discriminatory lending practices, I wouldn't know. I would just assume like that isn't done anymore. And so I think that we would hope that on a systematic level and then on a people level, that that's not happening anymore. And it it just still happening a lot to a lot of different groups. Yeah. It's always interesting to me when you find out and you're like, how does no one else know about this? Right. And so you find out about the stuff that you're seeing there. What's one of the things I guess that really like kind of blew you away? Like, oh my God, they really do that. Like, is there anything that you can say like, like that happened in terms of, you know, working with the clients and stuff that's happened to them? Um, there's a lot of different things, but how really incredibly unhelpful law enforcement is to sex workers just on every level. You know, you would assume that if you're operating legally, that you would be able to use them as a resource. And 
I don't know if it's internal policies or if it's actually just discrimination is so ingrained in parts of our society. It's just that you really can't advocate for yourself to law enforcement. So, I mean, recently I was at an adult conference and there were sex workers everywhere, obviously. Um, And there were some cases of harassment there. And in another context, I would have been like, why didn't you call security? Why didn't you call the police? And they just know that they're not going to be protected in that. If anything, they're going to be prosecuted for whatever situation they're in. And so I think it's not like I didn't know that was a thing. I just didn't know that was a thing specifically with sex workers. And I was like, oh, well, that sucks. <laughs> like, And I think there's so few groups that are actually advocating for sex workers that have power because a lot of the people who are in support of sex workers who are like purchasing the services of sex workers do not fundamentally believe in the things that sex workers believe. So they are utilizing the services and then actively voting against the rights of the people they're working with, which is a very interesting position to hold. <laughs> yeah, because you would think that's a whole nother thing. Like imagine that like when they have lists of people that actually participated in some of these things and the list of the people you're like, oh my gosh, this person, those are the same people that can make decisions to change things. But this is crazy. You yeah. Know what I mean. Yeah. I think that it's hard. And this is something that comes up a lot. It's a very old industry, regardless of how you feel about it. If you partake, if you don't partake, if you think you should see them in society or they should be like hidden, like because of the motivations of where it's coming from, it's just always going to exist. So it's kind of like, do you want it to exist in a healthy way? Do you want it to exist in a way that the people who are involved in it are safe and have rights? And yes, that's what I think. A large portion of the population, unfortunately, doesn't feel that way. They feel that like, sure, it should exist, but those people should not be safe. Those people should not have people that advocate for them. They should stay kind of in a certain class where they don't have the ability to protect themselves and they don't have the ability to sue people for being inappropriate and things like that. One of the things with my firm that has been most confusing and that I talk to some of the advisors that I'm closer to is just like, I oftentimes don't even feel like I'm running a financial firm anymore. Like I'm definitely not putting myself in like an advocate, but there's so many issues that are unrelated to the things I went over with the CFP that it's kind of, oh, I'm like researching banks that don't discriminate against sex workers. And people are like, where does that fit into your business model? And I don't know. (laughs) I think, you know, as you're dealing with people and their money, you have to find out ways that they can protect their money. (laughs) That's our job, you know? And I think we have a hard time separating what people do from who they are. Like what someone does as a profession, that's what you do for work. You got a nine to five or whatever time, whatever hours you work, but you have a job and then you are still a person. And I think you see it with different groups of people all the time where they try to dehumanize them and then make it okay to treat them a certain way, right? And if you can dehumanize people, then it makes it okay for them to be mistreated or for them not to be protected when something goes wrong because they're not human. I'm not saying that, but that's the way people treat certain people. And it's something that has to change. Working with stigmatized clients, what other things can you talk about working with the group of clients? I'll just be transparent here. It's very hard to not direct related to like a mission to make myself a better person. So I think that's constantly a struggle for me and something that really made me hesitant to work with stigmatized people. And maybe that sounds, I don't know if I can swear on here. If you need to cut that up, that's fine. That's fine. I think that it's very tricky to run a for-profit business in a realm that like is for the greater good because I can get a little like egotistical about it just naturally. Like, oh, I'm doing good stuff. And like, ultimately I started a financial firm to make money and I would like also to do good stuff. And I think it's all very complicated. And I also, when I started, I was like, do I do this knowing that I'm definitely going to mess it up and have to apologize and be like, I spoke on this when I should not have spoken on this. And that's on me. And I think that I chose to do it anyway, knowing that it would be better to do it 
in a messy way and to grow than to wait for perfection and not do it at all. But I think that is something that is tricky when you're working with, and it's not just necessarily the niche I'm working with, but with any group of stigmatized people, you're kind of balancing the like, is making money off of something inherently bad? And should this be a nonprofit? And there's just like a lot of things. And so I think that I'm a lot more conceptual about my business and like thinking through the, the motivations and the intentions of it than I would be if I was just like, let's work with doctors. I think I've made it more complicated for myself than is necessary. But I think that I personally get a lot of benefit from that in terms of like really enjoying my work and feeling a sense of purpose and that I'm making a positive impact. And that's important. No one wants to go work and feel like it's not meaningful and feel like you're not making a difference. And also, you know, I talk to clients about this too, but thinking about making money and it's always like you can do good and do well. Yeah. Right. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay to do good and do well. So like you can do good for people and do well for yourself. That's what I'm saying. And you shouldn't feel bad about it. You are a for-profit business. So you have to be able to make a profit to be able to continue to support the people that you want to help. So there's nothing wrong with that. And I tell people that a lot because I find a lot of people think like, oh, I shouldn't make X amount of dollars or I'm making more money than I think I should for what I do. And I'm like, when you call the the mechanic or the plumber or someone, they come over and they're specialists, basically mechanics, specialists, plumbers, specialists, they come over and you're like, I need help with this. I need you to fix this, whatever it is. We have no problem with that. Yeah. And we pay them for their expertise where if we tried to do it, it would take us so long to do it. It wouldn't even be fun. That's what you are to other people. And you should be paid for your time because that is the most valuable asset that we have is our time. So yeah, never feel bad for that. I just felt like I needed to say that. But well, thank you. I appreciate that. that. Yeah. Let's talk about this embracing failure. I want to talk to you about that a little bit. I feel like my life has just been a long list of failures, not in a bad way. There are very few things that I'm naturally good at. And I think that's okay. It's one of those things that I'm like, I think a lot of times people who are very good at a lot of things, and I definitely saw this and I had a friend that I studied for the CFP with, and she's always been very good at things, a lot smarter than me. It was really hard for her to deal with how much failure happens when you're studying for a designation, when you're doing hard things, because you aren't like getting a hundred percent for everything. You're like, I'm going to shoot for a C plus I'm going to shoot for a B. And I feel like so much of running my business and figuring things out in my life has just been like being cool with the fact that when I first start something, I'm going to be bad at it. Like even just with starting my podcast, I was like, you can't start day one and be at the level that someone who has been doing it for eight seasons is at. Like you just have to kind of stumble your way through it. And I think embracing that has allowed me to try new things and be the person I am today. And I also think that that's not something that's universal. Like I even remember the first time I took the series 65, which is a designation. I didn't pass it the first time because I was looking as conceptual and not as memorization, which is what it is. And I failed it. And I remember like the farm I was working at was nice enough that they were kind of like, I don't know, like if you can't pass this, like that's a lot of this career is passing things. And so if you're not good at that, then maybe this isn't the career for you. And I was like, what? And people are like that if they don't pass the CFP the first time, they're like, maybe you don't get to be an advisor. I think that's so harmful. Like there are plenty of things that are worth doing that you're not going to get right the first or hundredth time. Totally agree with that. And I think when you do have that failure, especially with that 65, because that series 65, series seven, you know, you take those exams and when you fail them, you don't find out how many people failed until after you fail. Like, and after you, you embrace it and you're like, you know what, I had, I had a tough time. I failed. And then, then your friends and other people that have gone through it will come like, and be like, yeah. well, I failed mine 
to one time and I, you know, and then you find out and yeah. uh, you're in good company. I failed mine one time too. Yeah. So it's just one of those things, but I think the embracing part of it is so important. Yeah. And I think too, like a lot of people, especially with money. And I find this with a lot of clients, like I talk a lot about kind of the, the soft side of, of financial planning of like, how did you feel about money when you were growing up? How did that shape your goals for what success is and what enough is throughout your career? And I think that a lot of times we learn very instrumental lessons when we're younger or at certain times in our life and they aren't positive lessons, but it feels so much a part of us that, that we don't think we can change it. And I think if you're kind of in a static place of you're like, this is what I'm like, and that's how I'm always going to be, then it's really hard to move past that. And I remember when I was younger, I had a very conservative family and my family told me that women were bad at math. They're just bad at math. And so I was like, women are bad at math. And I was bad at math. I also wasn't taught math. I was homeschooled. I wasn't taught math, but I was like, yeah, I can see I'm bad at math. And it was like, well, that's a feminine thing. And I was like, okay. And it was the same thing with women are bad with money. And I was like, okay. And if I had just stuck with that, then I wouldn't be where I am today. And so I think that a lot of people have that of just, um, you see that a lot with retired couples too, of like the woman will be like, oh, I don't like, that's not my thing. It stresses me out. I don't like to go to the meetings. And I'm like, Hey, if you're willing to, we should dig into that. Cause I think there's something down there where you are insecure about it. And I think we can get past it, but you have to be willing to feel awkward and embarrassed and, you know, kind of be a failure and then get past it so that you, we can get to the better version of you. 1000% agree. I think about those old money scripts, right? Yeah. And I used to think that women are better at English. I heard that. Yeah. I heard those things. And I think like, as you're going through that, those money scripts can creep into your life and you really actually start to believe that you're not good at something because of something that you learned in the past and does plague our clients. It plagues us like almost like imposter syndrome. Like I can't yeah. do this because I'm not supposed to do it. Like there's no way I should be able to be a financial advisor with my CFP because I'm I'm not good at numbers. Well, yeah, it sounds like you're all right with numbers to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of different things like that. And a lot of it isn't our fault. Like, I mean, I've had to kind of go back and forgive myself for thinking like, oh, I'm bad at this when it was really just like, I wasn't given any tools to learn about it. Like you have to have a foundation and I had to go, I married an engineer. So in that way, I'm kind of lucky, but I had to go back through, like when I started college, I had to go back through and I was like, honey, this is embarrassing. And don't you dare make fun of me, but like, we should probably teach me like fractions and dividing and stuff. Cause like, it's not in there foundationally. It's, mm -hmm. it's not a natural thing in my brain. And that was embarrassing and not comfortable for me, but then I got past it and then it was fine. It was just like a lot of times I see this, not even just with like math, but with reading too. Like a lot of times, like if you get past a certain point, people will not talk about being unable to read because mm -hmm. it's embarrassing to them, which totally makes sense. But like, you know, you got to embrace that. I, I, work I, on I, it. <laughs> I had that experience actually happen. One of my oh, good really? friends, so I'm not going to say his name just because that's not cool. But one yeah. of my good friends came up to me and we were doing some stuff. He just told me like, we live together now my friends that are listed are like, hmm, who do you live with? Yeah. But um, he told me, he's like, I can't really read. And yeah. I, we were like adults. And I was like, are you being serious? And the courage that it took for him to tell me that now he absolutely can read, he, you know, has a degree, doesn't I mean, he's leaps and bounds way better than he was and more educated than he was. Like, I think about that embarrassment that he had to feel when he told me, but what happened after that was the best thing that ever could have happened to them because he continued to learn. He said, this is my basis. And so me and him got together. We talked, we went through it. This is what I do. 
And he grew from there. And now, you know, because he wasn't embarrassed to tell me, or he may have been embarrassed, but he's had the courage to tell me. And not necessarily that it had to be me, but he needed to tell someone. And I just was lucky enough, fortunate enough to be the person that he trusted to tell. Yeah. And so I think like life is about not only sharing those failures, like you're saying, embracing them and then watching what happens after. That's the great part. Yeah, absolutely. As you know, this is the Minority Money Podcast where we are changing the complexion of wealth. I have a few questions I want to ask you and I ask these to all the guests. The first one is what motivates you or inspires you to learn, grow and lead? That's a good question. I think it has changed initially, just going back to my last point. I was very insecure. I had a really alternative education. I was unschooled, if you've heard of that. Basically, my parents were like, here's some books and you could learn them. And like, that only works for very specific people. It wasn't me. So I learned some things, but not everything. And and I was really, really insecure about that. And I didn't initially go to college right away, partially because my parents didn't want me to, and they told me not to, but also because I didn't think I was smart enough. So I've been chasing that insecurity of being smart enough and being accomplished and like not being embarrassed by who I am and what I know for a long time. And positively, that's starting to switch to just a love of learning. I finally kind of reached whatever arbitrary level I had of like, now I actually say that I'm an intellectual person and I'm smart and I can own that. And now I'm like, you know, I really, I like learning. I enjoy it. And I think that people who know me personally know this, but my mantra is I do what I want, which people really don't appreciate. If I don't want to do something, I just don't do it, which is why it's good that I'm a business owner. But I just really like learning. And if I like learning, then I'm going to do it. And then sometimes I go through a drought of like a few months where I just not taking on more information. But I feel like I'm trying to like feed a monster inside of me of like more information, more things. Whether or not this question is going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> do you think that education plays a big part in building wealth? I totally think that. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting because I've said this a few times and I think I'm finally getting old enough that people are like, okay, we accept that answer from you. But every year I change drastically as a person. Like I almost feel like, I don't know if you ever look back on things you've done a few years ago and you're kind of embarrassed because you're not like the full version of yourself. You're like, interesting take that has aged poorly. But I feel that way about most things. And I'm kind of determined to each year be drastically different and build on who I've been previously. And I'm 29. So when I'm 39, if I don't have not terribly different, but like more in depth views of things and more not even sophisticated, but just like empathetic take on things, then I won't have been doing my job. And I think education is part of that and not necessarily checking the box of a designation or a degree, but just like, I'm going to only read books by like this demographic of author and and see what they have to say. And I'm going to listen to music that's in a different language and see like what the vibe is with that. Like, I just think that probably comes from being raised in the Midwest, but it was so very isolated with a, a certain type of person that like, you got to put yourself out there. Otherwise you're, you're not going to change and be better. The listening to music and picking up on the vibe is so deep. Cause I do that. Like yeah. I listen to music. I can't understand what they're saying, but I was like, yeah. the vibes, I can feel it. I like, I don't, have to, like I don't have to know what they're saying. I don't have to know word for word. I can pick up a word here. Shout out to my daughter. Cause she's the one that started doing that. And then I kind of like, you know, that's actually cool. So she listens to Korean music a lot. Yeah. Um, 
And so like, she just, that's her thing. She loves it. I don't necessarily listen to Korean music, but I listen to other music in different languages that I can't understand and just kind of vibe out on it. Cause I don't know what they're saying, but I can feel like, then I'll translate it later. But anyhow, sorry about that. I just have to No, it. I agree with that. I think especially with two genres that I think work really well, sad music and rap. If it's a sad song, you know the vibe. You don't need to know what the storyline is. You can like feel it. And I think the same thing with rap. I mean, I'd like to know that there's not any like weird slurs. It's not like Nazi rap, but mm-hmm. besides that, I'm like, that's you know yeah so I don't know how that I choose to believe that has shaped how I am as a person I don't know specifically what that means but I'm here for it (laughs) I like it I'm here for it too I like it if you could offer a piece of advice or pieces to our listeners parting gifts if you will what would that advice be I would say you have to protect your own energy and I don't necessarily mean that in a super spiritual way but I think that like in a workplace or in a relationship or in a friendship you can tell if someone is always kind of shutting down the best versions of you. If you let that happen for too long, I think you lose who you are. And I see that happening in workplaces a lot. And so I think that you have to be very cautious of, especially like in a pandemic and when all sorts of bad things are happening everywhere, like be very guarded of your energy and the best version of you. And if you need to step away from bad relationships, do that. I like it. I think that's solid advice. Man, this is good. I want to keep going. I know, you know, I've only told you so many minutes, so I'm going to stop because I told you I was going to stop. But I'm like, this has been incredible. Like, I've really just enjoyed chatting with you and then just really kind of expanding my own thoughts and my own ideas and thinking like, I really enjoy talking to you. If people want to get more of Lindsay, I found you on social media. How can someone else find you on social media? What social medias are you active on? What are your tags? I'm most active on Twitter. That's the most like stream of consciousness version of Lindsay. It's uh, stripper financial planning, but that's kind of the summarized version. So it's like stripper fin plan. I have a sub stack. I don't spam people with it. I usually just send out stuff about like banking discrimination and weird goodies. I'm on Instagram. I'm trying to be on TikTok, but God, it's hard. So it's mostly stripper financial planning. I would love if you would come follow me, engage, ask me questions. And if you want to know more about sex work in general, I'm happy to push along. I'm not an expert on the community by any means, but I've read a lot of good books and know a lot of resources that I can push you to. So happy to help educate. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll put a link to all of that in the show notes after the show. So if you have anything you want to connect with Lindsay, you want to follow her, you want to ask some questions, we'll have all of her information there so you can do that. Once again, thank you for stopping by. It's been very, very great conversations. I love it. And as you all know, this is the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly. Until next time, we are changing the complexion of wealth. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA Or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here. And until next time, 